0: If you would, bow with me. Father, we are grateful to be here to set before your word. We ask for a heart to respond in the way that would give honor and glory to your name. Lord, we know that we need you. We need your power. We need your spirit to work in us, through us. We need our hearts to be transformed. We need to be renewed by your word. So we ask today that that would be the case. In Christ's name, amen. When um, It's interesting, this is our first year here, and it has been uh, really neat. It's been many years of uh, working towards um, this point, and the Lord's really blessed us. And I just want to say I'm, I'm thankful to God for you and for the opportunity this year to celebrate uh, in this building and to be able to have a place for us to gather. And we are uh, really, really blessed to to experience that. And and really, like I said, thankful for you most of all. It's been really amazing to see how the Lord has uh, worked in and through uh, this church. And so anyway, we're going to be studying this morning uh, in Philippians 2. So if you haven't already turned there, uh, go ahead and turn there. You know... Sometimes when you think about Christmas, think about Christmas season, uh, most of you probably have spent a lot of time uh, reading the narrative, you know, the, the, the storyline of Jesus' birth. And, uh, um, and we might say, let's look at the angels or let's look at the magi or the shepherds or Mary or Joseph or, or a number of those things. I and mean, we just kind of, that, that's what we do a lot of times. And that's not bad because if you understand and I understand a story in general, you know that... If you'll follow the storyline, a story has within it uh, things that you can grasp, theological things, for instance, in, in, in the stories about Jesus. You see theology, sometimes you just have to read the story and back up and say, what, what is being communicated here? Uh, today, what we're looking in Philippians 2, 5 through 8, what we're looking at is not something where we're saying, um, uh, we, we, I mean, it's not It's hard for us to say, like, what is his point? And, and so what is he trying to communicate to us? You could almost call this like the theology behind Christmas in a very clear way. Just I want you to understand why did he come? Why did Jesus come? What was the purpose of the incarnation? And and what what do we need to grasp from that and see from that? So we are going to focus on the theology of, of, of Christmas, you might say, without neglecting Paul's purpose of, of calling us to follow Jesus' example in the strength and power that he provides. And so I think it's important for us to understand that, to see that this morning. And again, we're looking at 2, 5 through 8. We could look at 2, 5 through 11. Uh, that would be very easy, where we would focus in and say it's about the humiliation and exaltation of uh, the second person of the Trinity. And But today, again, we're just looking at his humiliation in his coming to us. So uh, if you study or spend time in the season of Advent uh, and you spend time reading maybe something as a family, as you do that, uh, you're reminded often of all of the marvelous truths about Jesus' coming. But like I say, today you're going to dive in and drink a little deeper uh, with regard to its theology. And so I hope you'll see that because we need to remind ourselves over and over Jesus is the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, and that He, the eternal God, came from heaven to earth. He was born of the Virgin Mary, and He, uh, He, so He was man. So He is like the God Man, and that He uh, came here. He became a servant. He came here in a humble way, became a servant, the greatest of servants and was so obedient, he went all the way to the point of death, even death on the cross, so that we could be saved. And that's what we think about when we think about Christmas, or we should think about and consider. It's a marvelous, marvelous truth to understand that and to see that. And so we're going to look at it today and and, and hopefully work through it together. So now let's start, and I just want you to think in terms of this. uh, What is the point in Philippians 2? It really is is like, follow Jesus' example in his humiliation. So I just want you to see that real quick, just so you'll kind of put it in your head, and we'll pick it back up at the end. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So there were some people grumbling in the church. Paul's going to address that. And he's going to say, listen, you need to put one another first. And they might say, well, I, you know, they're not thinking about me, like a husband and a wife, you might say. It's like, uh, they're not thinking about me. They're not They're not putting me first. I'm not going to put them first or, what you know, something like that. And so, or, or in a church, it'd be like, well, I really like the music. And somebody else like, well, I really like to play out on the playground. And so they begin to fight over, you know, like, we, we need more time on the playground. We need more time singing or something like that, right? And Paul's saying, like, hold on just a second. I think it was even deeper that in the church in Philippi. But he says, you need to understand that you are to follow the example of Christ, and his example is one of though he, had my, he may have had great privilege, he emptied himself and became a servant. And so you follow him. And so that's kind of where we are, but it's more than that. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. What is he saying? He's saying, you, it's a present possession. If you are in Christ, you've been united to Him, born again, born of the Spirit, you have the attitude of Christ as a present possession. Put it on. Practice it. That's kind of what he is laying out before us. So, But again, today we're going to focus in on the theological stuff so that you see that and then circle back to Paul's main thrust and main point. So what do we learn about the theology of Christmas with Christ coming to earth? The first thing would be this. He abandoned his great position. That, that's, that's the first kind of thing. He, he's reigning over everything. He abandons that position. Look at verse 6. Who though he was in the form of God. So we say Jesus eternally existed. He has never not existed. He is the eternal Son of God. It's important to understand that. He is equal in, in power and glory with the Father and the Spirit. He eternally existed. In the form as this idea is His person, His nature, His character, His attributes, all of those are possessed by the eternal Son of God And the way we're going to speak of Him today, the Lord Jesus Christ, we're not going to say just, oh, the second person of the Trinity or God's Son. We're just saying, when we speak of Jesus Christ, we're saying He was God. His nature, character, attributes, He is God. He's in the form of God. It is His essence. It is His very being. He is God. It is explaining something that cannot be changed. It cannot be changed. It is impossible to change Him. It's like you can't alter that. You can't go in and say, well, let's see if we can alter it in some way. He is God. That is why in Matthew you read, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call His name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So God came down to us. It's just important to say that. You need to see that he had this position in heaven as the eternal sovereign over the universe. He spoke. It's created. He's sustaining it. And you read in Colossians 1, 15 through 17, all things hold together.
1: So that's just, it's important to say that. God became man, not ceasing to be God. He is forever
0: God. He will always be God. And He made everything, sustains everything, and then He comes to earth to redeem, to restore, to bring renewal. And so I think it's important to grasp that. I want you to hear another verse. Speaking of His eternality. Hebrews 1.3 He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And then He goes on, after making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The eternal son of God who created and sustains came down and then he went back up to his place of great authority. And I think it's important for some of us, and we live in this world where it's like so, I mean, there's so much and it's in me and it's in you of like, we have such expectations about our privileges or about our privileges in some way being taken away. We have this such high expectations of what we deserve. I mean honestly your children are growing up in that way they're watching you speak in that way they're watching me speak in that way we have such great listen all you need is just a little bit of time with some privilege and then you will just continue to want that to grow, and if it's ever in any way, it looks like one of your privileges are taken away, you will lose your mind. That's the world we live in. What we see here is, he is the, he, I mean, genuinely, he is in the place of highest honor because he is the eternal God and he, he, he is deserving of his place, but it's just important to understand he possessed all the attributes of God, and he is God. And so that's what we need to see. Now, we would say, what does that mean? Well, in one catechism, it's the, the question is, what is God? The answer is, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness and truth think about that list infinite eternal and unchangeable in all of those things jesus begins to explain who he is the jews would condemn him for that because he was making himself equal with god because he is the eternal god the second person of the trinity now you say why do you spend all that time talking about that Because I think it's important for you to understand the incarnation, the coming of Christ as a human. You've got to understand who He was and then what happened. And so that's kind of what we do. We need to think about that because we want... Sometimes people say, now, you just make much of Christmas, you know, and make much of the, the baby in the manger and, you know, that kind of thing. You're like, okay, like, the baby's cute in the manger, Right? And so maybe you're just like, ah, yeah, and I like those wise men and the shepherds, don't they look nice? And look at all those animals. I, I love a farm and, you know, or whatever. But you're like, ah, do you really, are you getting what's taking place here? Now notice what it says. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So he has the highest position he is the eternal God and privilege. Right, maybe right now, if you are to take account stock of your life, just stop and think, do I have position and privilege? What, where am I in the social circles that I run in? Where am I from 1 to 10? Oh, I feel like a 3. I feel like a 7. I feel like a 10. I feel so great that I'm off the charts. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, what's the idea? He did not clutch his position. He did not hold on to his position. Sometimes our identity is so tied up in position and power and prominence and wealth, He's holding on. He did not clutch that. Instead, he divested himself of all of his privileges in order that he might serve us. He did not cease to be God, but he did not hold on to all of his privileges. He laid them down. He possessed equality with God, but he was willing to let it go. He was willing to give it up. Now, you might say, whoa, what are we talking about here? We're going to talk about that just real quick because it's important. You need to understand what took place with Jesus. Some people will fight their whole lives to hold on to their position, you know? And you're like, I mean, if if in light of being a child of God, whatever position you hold on this earth is not, I mean, there's just no comparison. And so it's funny when we do that. It's crazy when we do that. Like, I don't, I don't know. It, it's, it's something that we, we, we do struggle with. And we, we can't really understand a lot of times. But notice what he says, or what it says, but he emptied himself. So he's, he's the ruler of the universe. He's the king of all. He created and sustains the world, but he emptied himself. He does not hold on to his rights and privileges. He did not empty himself of his nature, He did not stop being God. He did not give up the attributes of God. In no way. None of that. He's 100% God. He did not lose that. He did not cease to be God. He is still the creator and sustainer of the universe. But he emptied himself of all the divine privileges. What you find out is when he came on earth, that people did not say, Oh, there's God. Look, God came to visit us. That, That's—they were not all saying "Emmanuel, Emmanuel." They weren't. They did not see Him in that way. Why? Because He didn't look like that. He had emptied Himself of that. He did. They, they, he was. It was veiled. His glory was veiled, like Moses who put. The, 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 they put something over Him to veil the, 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 just the experience of being in the presence of God. This is God that comes to us and it's veiled like you don't see it. You can't see it. He emptied Himself of His glory. He, You could say He veiled His glory. Just kind of understanding that. The only time... That his glory was unveiled is when you go to the Mount of Transfiguration. He takes three of the disciples up there. In in verse 2 it says, And he was transfigured before him, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Now listen. Listen. What it says in verse 5 through 9. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice uh, from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one, but Jesus only, and as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one of this vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. There's this one moment that he pulls back the curtain, and they see his glory. They behold his glory, and they fall down before him in in a state of terror to see him. So what does he do? He comes to this earth. He gave up his honor. He gave up his riches. What what are we speaking of there? Second Corinthians eight nine says, "For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that you, uh, so, I mean, so that you by his poverty might become rich." It, 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 I don't think we're talking about just money. He divested himself of all the treasures of heaven, of all the glories of heaven. He gave up like his independence in one sense there's a submission between the father and the son but he said while he was on this earth he did nothing but what the father told him to do not that they would ever do anything against one another but there is this real emphasis on him backing away from his personal authority and submitting wholly and completely to the father only using his power as he is directed he just gave up all of his privileges. This is shocking. What did he do instead? So he leaves his, this great position and he accepted a, sla- a slave's place. Notice what it says. By taking the form of a servant or slave. He who should have been served, served. He who deserved to be given glory and honor took the form of a servant, a slave. He didn't leave the place of, you know, like the place of being the king of heaven to become the king of earth, which would have been, listen to this, that would have been a place of extremely low honor. That would have been humbling himself. I mean, that would have been, unimaginable humbling of himself to come down and be the king of of earth in that way to just be like the leader of some country that's not what he does he humbles himself to the place of a slave let me ask you something some of you may say here today i have a lot of authority power, prosperity. Do, do you think it's interesting? Like, have you ever seen somebody in that kind of place <laughs> washing people's feet? Serving in this way? you ever seen somebody leave all of that privilege and power and just Serve in this way. This doesn't look like man, not the ways of men. This this seems heaven, like heaven. This is different. There's something godlike here because you're saying he men don't act in this way. So he accepts the slave's place. Isaiah fifty three eleven says that he would bear our iniquities. He leaves his place of authority and comes down and becomes a slave. Can you think about the way that he would be clothed in one picture and then the next? To understand that is shocking. He is the servant of the Lord in Isaiah. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He spoke to the disciples and said, It is not so among you, but whoever wished to be great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wished to be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So often, the greater our privilege, power, wealth that we have, the greater that is, the more we think we deserve. The more we think we deserve it. We, we think we deserve it. I did all these things. I deserve this. That is not, Jesus doesn't say, Hey, I'm God, like I deserve this. You know, and sit over there and pout when no, no one's bowing down. He's willingly giving His life in service to His people. Not only that, like He associated with sinful people. He lived just an average and ordinary life. He was born in the likeness of men. He became human. He is truly 100% God and 100% man. He was found in the form, human form. This is like kind of the, we talked about that inner nature. He became a human. But now you're thinking externally. He became a human. He came in human form. He is externally a man. He feels the things that men feel. He knows what it's like to be outside on a hot day. He knows what it's like to thirst. He knows what it's like to be hungry. He knows what it's like for someone to be mad at Him. He knows what it's like to experience all the troubles of this life. He even said that the Son of Man has no place to lay His head. He knew what it was like to be homeless. He went from birth to adulthood, all of those experiences along the way. He had a family. He learned a trade. He, for 30 years, he was outside of any of the things that uh, you would, I mean, I mean any of the the, the the spotlight, he was outside of that, living in a village, learning a trade, and just working along like anyone else. He had emotions. He cried. He was angry, yet without sin. All those things. The eternal Son of God left the glory of heaven to come down to the earth as a servant. They, they wouldn't even, like, the people looked at him and said, I, you know, they weren't sure what to do even when he was doing insanely, like, shocking things even as they saw the curse reverse before their very eyes, even when sickness and and, and death and disease and disorder and all of those things were turned on their heads before them, when you said, like, only God could do this, who else could reverse the curse? They still could not see him in that way. He was too close to to, to, to what... Everyone thought of as a normal man. They even spoke of him about his area, the region, or the town he was from. Uh, Like, could anything come good, like out of Nazareth? It's like the opposite of what you would think. So he abandons this great position. He takes a slave's place. He associates with just ordinary, everyday people. He lives this ordinary life. It really, uh, you could say a, a, a lower level, a lower socioeconomic level than maybe what we would think, of course, than what we would think. And then fourthly, like you could just say, like he, he kind of took on this, this amazing selflessness that led him not only to, to just come to earth and to live among us but, and to become a servant, but to literally lay down his life. Not because he deserved it. That's the other shocking thing. I mean, when you think about this time of Christmas, you think about the coming of the Christ, and you think about all those things, when you really kind of flesh this out, he begins to tell his disciples, and it happens in Matthew where he begins to say like, the, the son of God, is, he, he is coming, he's, or the son of man, I believe is how he would say it, is coming. He is going to lay down his life on the third day. He will rise again. But it's all about the point of his life, or his coming, is to rescue his people from their sins, and it will cost him his life. But not only that, he is going to experience the wrath of God in its fullness. All along the way, he is selfless. And and, and he's demonstrating that by his words, by his deeds. There's constantly things going on where the disciples are kind of looking at him and saying like, well, y'all leave him alone, don't? And he's, he's embracing things. He, he serves them over and over, as we talked about. He washed their feet. All along the way, you're saying like he's humbled himself, but then he takes the ultimate step of humiliation. He is obedient to the Father all the way to death, death on the cross. And there he endured the wrath of God for sinners. The incarnation is stopping and saying the eternal Son of God became man, dwelt among us, served in obedience to the Father to the point of death, even death on the cross. Which I heard somebody say this week, which is like some people, historians would say, is like dying a thousand deaths. But not just death on the cross, but he is behind the cross is the wrath of God for all who would believe for all time. He gave his life as a ransom for many. Augustine summarized the incarnation in this way. In the bosom of the Father, he existed before all the cycles of ages, born of an earthly mother, he entered upon the course of the years on this day. The maker of man became man, that he, ruler of the stars, might be nourished at his mother's breast, that he, the bread, might hunger, that he, the fountain, might thirst, that he, the light, might sleep, that he, the way, might might be wearied by the journey, that he the truth might be accused by false witnesses, that he the judge of the living and the dead might be brought to trial by a mortal judge, that he justice might be condemned by the unjust, that he discipline might be scourged with whips, that he the foundation might be suspended upon a cross, that he courage might be weakened, that he, healer, might be wounded, that he, life, might die. To endure these and similar indignities for us, to free us, unworthy creatures, he who existed as the Son of God before all ages, without a beginning, deigned to become the Son of Man in these recent years. He did this, although he who submitted to such great evils for our sake had done no evil, and although we, who were the recipients of so much good at his hands, had done nothing to merit these benefits. In light of this, in light of this, the question that kind of hangs in the air for Philippians is, in light of that, will you serve? One another? Will you serve? Because some of you say, I'm doing really
1: good with God. What's your measure? What's your measure? Is it the example of Christ? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Is that your example? He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Who's going to lift up their head? Who's going to stand there in pride and say, Oh, I've given you all these things. Only a man who's never stood before the incarnation can act like that. But when you see it, when you stop saying, I deserve this. I deserve that. What are you going to do for me? It's all about me. The incarnation stops you. And it makes you stand and say, There is nothing that I can lift up and say, Look at all that I've done. Praise me. Worship me. The incarnation causes you to stop and say, The greatest gift.
0: The greatest gift is the eternal Son of God came down to save sinners. He came down and He went 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 down. down he down. He endured the wrath of God that we might by grace through faith receive a gift that we could never deserve, that we could never earn, so that we might, by virtue of our union with Christ, be able to have the new birth, experience the new birth, and serve one another. Philippians 2, 1-4 says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from His love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfishness or selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves let each of you look not only to his own interests but also to the interests of others let's pray father we thank you for the season that reminds us of the coming of our lord who gave himself for us Not because we deserved it. Who gave himself as a a servant, a slave for us. Who left the glories of heaven for us. That we might be saved. And not just saved to sit, but saved to serve. That we might be saved to serve one another, people that are not just like us, people that don't always think like us, people that don't have the desires that we have, people that are unlovely to us, that we might serve them and follow in his footsteps as weak and as feeble as we may be able to. In the mind and heart that he has given us by virtue of the new birth, we pray we would walk in faith, trusting you to provide us what we have already been given, that we might provide us with the ability to believe that. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would stand with me at this time.